Welcome back to Authentic Influence. I'm your host, Adam Connor. First off, thank you for tuning in to the show today. If you're a new listener, welcome. This is a podcast which dives into the topic of user-generated content and the revolution it is sparking in marketing strategies within the world's top brands. I also invite you, if you're new or if you're not, to listen to our first few episodes released earlier this month as part of our launch, in which we laid the groundwork for what makes for best-in-class UGC standards with Vivoom CEO Catherine Hayes and discussed delivering content on the fans' terms with the CMO of the newly crowned World Series champion Boston Red Sox, Adam Grossman. Speaking of the world's top brands and their marketing strategies, our guest today has quite the storied experience with them. Peter Horst boasts 10 years as CMO of TD Ameritrade, True Secure, which was later acquired by Verizon, and most recently, the Hershey Company. He also notably took the helm as SVP of Brand Marketing and CMO of Capital One, during which time he was behind the financial giant's now famous slogan, What's in Your Wallet? Today, Peter is the founder of CMO Inc., through which he advises organizations on marketing and brand strategy and speaks to groups around the world on leadership challenges in modern marketing. He also writes for Forbes and CMO.com and is the author of Marketing in the Fake News Era, New Rules for a New Reality of Tribalism, Activism, and Loss of Trust. I think you're really going to love today's episode and conversation, especially if you're interested in that topic. After all, how are brands marketing these days in a world where consumers are increasingly skeptical and distrustful, not necessarily of the brand doing the marketing, but of all media? Peter has vast experience in this field, and I think you'll get a lot of value from the insight he provides. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the founder of CMO Inc., Peter Horst. All right, I'm joined today by Peter Horst, very special guest of ours, uh, and one of the first we have here on the podcast. Peter, thanks very much for for joining the, the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I uh, was was super excited to uh, to get to get your acceptance and and to have you join us because I know that you have a, a lot of knowledge specifically and recently around uh, some of the topics that I'm hoping that that we can cover today as we begin to think about how brands can be using content and messaging broadly uh, to either enhance their value in the market or perhaps unintentionally uh, start to degrade it. And, and you know, you've just released a book that I'd love to use part of this interview to talk about in which you describe some of those potential issues uh, that companies and brands have run into, um, you know, perhaps actively or through, new, through no fault of their own uh, to, to talk broadly about what the power of that messaging is and also uh, would love to dive a little bit into how consumers can get involved, both from a brand perspective and from their own perspective. But I would love to start the interview uh, with this one thing. And I think this is something we can agree on, but uh, with your hefty experience in the market, leading campaigns, leading overall companies, it would be great to hear it straight from you. Uh, let's talk for a second about the extent to which brand value is reflective of an overall business value that you might see in the market. Because obviously we know that a brand's IP is 
king. And that's very important. It's a very valuable asset. But I noticed that you had made a couple of comments in your book and released a couple of quotes and statistics that that showed this. And so I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit just to set the level here for our audience. Sure. Well, you've touched on a really um, important and very timely topic. And, you know, you said we all know how valuable it is. I think we all in the marketing business know that, but um, we don't all in the corporate world, I think, fully appreciate that. And, you know, there are a bunch of reasons for that. But, you know, brand is one of those things that um, does not get as much sort of quantified analytical focus as as it as it deserves and thereby therefore i don't think it you have a lot of boards and ceos who fully appreciate how much of their total enterprise value is made up of the brand value because it's not something that they have yet had to quantify and put on their balance sheets um if they did i think there'd be a whole lot more attention to it and a whole lot less challenging of investments that are around brand and can sometimes be harder to kind of quantify and demonstrate an ROI. But, you know, there's been some research recently uh, that shows that on average brand value represents as much as 20% of total corporate value. And it can go up dramatically from there if it's a you know consumer facing brand like a food product or, you know, retail or fashion where it can be, you know, fully 50% of the value of the company in that brand. And if, if more boards appreciated that, I think they would spend an awful lot more time concentrating on the issue of what are we doing to build and protect this critical corporate asset. It's obviously, I guess, to us then. Yeah, great point. Um, and also something which I think we'll we'll discuss a little bit further here as we begin to dive into some of the ways that folks are using that brand, that very precious asset, uh, in an increasingly, um, I don't know if we should say unstable, but at least skeptical public and and the result that that can have if things happen to go wrong, the sort of risk that brands could open themselves into. But I'd like to touch on that in a little bit because I know that's especially where uh, currently you, you are doing a lot, especially with this book again that I want to get back to. But let's start on the more positive side. Let's start with the overall strategic impact of what that brand value brings and overall how that brand value could lead a business to the better. Now, in your vast career, you have led businesses like Hershey and Capital One and Ameritrade. These are very, very well-known brands and protected brands and precious value. And notably, you've been behind some great marketing campaigns. I think What's in Your Wallet is something that everybody knows very well, and we know that you were behind that. Um, so would love to get your perspective from that experience as well as perhaps experiences that you've seen in the market, maybe competitively, uh, a brand that you were competing with in the space that you were in at the time, where using a brand effectively has really elevated a business beyond perhaps what they were able to sell actively. Sure. Well, I think um, a great example of that is Capital One. And I would have to give you know total credit to the founder, Rich Fairbank, who you know, created the company, gosh, probably close to 30 years ago now, around the notion of deep analytics and data, you know, before, you know, all the sort of data uh, frenzy was was current, um, but had the wisdom, you know, about 10 years in to realize 
um, that while he was building a great and profitable business, that uh, Capital One was not a brand that carried a lot of weight. And in fact, you know, they saw that in direct mail A-B testing, an unbranded envelope did better than a Capital One branded envelope. Wow. So he, he realized at the point that whereas the, the credit card game at that point was all about using the Visa and the MasterCard brands, uh, and the bank issuer brand was you know, very much uh, subsidiary to that. He said, I've got to build a brand to be in control of my destiny and made really a strategic and faith-based leap to invest a substantial amount of money behind brand with no sort of spreadsheet proof you know, to say that that was a smart move. Um, but did that, sustained it over years, and was a huge brand champion um, even in the face of some early internal skepticism, that that would be one of the most critical differentiators. And in fact, I do think it became um, one of the most powerful ways in which Capital One set itself apart from the broad sea of competitors offering <clears throat> uh, credit cards and, and other financial products. And the personality, the tonality, the whole vibe and, and the marketing content really became something that helped uh, the company grow tremendously and set itself apart from, you know, what for a long time was a sea of sameness of, of bank advertising and credit card advertising that just was very, very hard for consumers to distinguish. So I think, you know, that that was uh, one one great example of just the power that brand can have in in building business value over time. Well, that's that's a really interesting point that that you bring up, and thank you for some of the history there um, with regard to to how bank branding was seen in the face of what a payment network's branding may have been previously. Of course, at least as I, as a regular consumer in the market, can see it today, I see it almost as flipped. Where, of course, I, I see payment networks out there, but but banks and the and the, and the heavy content marketing that they do is is far more visible and far more present than that. I'm uh, I'm curious. As that transformation has happened, obviously, uh, what's in your wallet happened and sort of transformed the way that, that Capital One marketed themselves in content. Uh, could you help to elucidate what happened after that started to launch and how that really uh, helped to transform uh, Capital One's brand value uh, once that idea was implemented in market? Because I think that it serves as a pretty critical point in, at least, again, in my visibility of what Capital One was, but... Uh, Obviously, you have a much more inside track as to how that how that really started to explode things. Well, it, it goes back a bit to the founding idea of the company itself, which was, um, you know, the founders looked around and saw that the credit card industry was in kind of a strange place, right? Everybody got the same product, paid the same pretty high interest rate, and millions and millions of people could not get access to credit. And in a world where not everybody... Is, is equally credit worthy, um, that just didn't make much sense, right? So they used all this analytical brain power to uh, distinguish different pockets of uh, consumers and their various sort of credit risk and, and value as a customer and crafted um, a range of products and pricing and fees and so forth so that they could profitably serve a much broader range of customers than the market was addressing. And, oh, by the way, significantly reduce the cost of credit for millions and millions of people. So it was a pretty startling change. 
But, you know, there's this thing called inertia where people just get used to doing what they're doing. So the idea of that initial campaign and the tagline was to, to be a very arresting um, sort of in-your-face message to say, wait, stop and think. You know, don't just continue to, uh, you know, practice default behavior. But what's in your wallet? What are you using? And this is, you know, stop and think and do something better. So over time, as the company diversified, the question arose, well, gosh, when we get into home loans and car loans, you don't keep a car in your pocket or a house in your pocket. Should we change the tagline because that seems so credit card centric? But as we thought about it, we said, you know, no, it's a broader idea than that. And it really is the company continued on a, on a strategy of how can we move into new arenas, but with a notion of disrupting and bringing better value and changing the game for the better. Um, this notion of stop and think what's in your wallet, meaning what are you spending? What are you getting? What are you saving? What kind of values, you know, are you deriving from your relationships? Um, that continued to apply. That's not a literal wallet and consumers got that. So, you know, as the company continued to grow and expand and become a top 10 bank, that, that same notion of, you know, how can we really bring differential value, better experience, less headache, um, more benefit um, continued to be at the heart of everything the company did, and that's that sort of um, that sort of grab them by the lapels and tell people there's a better thing out there uh, remained a part of that. What's in your wallet tagline? Well, that that's an excellent story, and I think definitely underpins what the power of a of a good uh, branding message can do. I mean, obviously now. Uh, you know, Capital One has exploded in this space and, and has for many, many years. And, um, you know, I think it is part of that broader sense. And I'm glad that you thought of it as broader than just a credit card, because, you know, it, it is it is just a general theme of, of, of what do you what are you doing with your money and what's the value that you're that you're getting from it. And uh, just as that enhanced person to person value, so too did it advance brand value. And so what I'm getting here and I think a main takeaway that I'm picking up so far is that, all right, it's clear that branding and messaging and perhaps the content into which that branding and messaging is packaged is king. And we see from, from your vast experience, at least in this detailed story of Capital One, that that is true. Uh, today, when we think about content itself and how branding is positioned within that, obviously you've overseen a number of fantastic marketing campaigns into which that branding is infused, but I was curious as to your thoughts onto how branding is optimally leveraged within that. And I'm leading this a little bit, but what I mean to say is that what I've seen more and more in the market is that, of course, uh, marketing is strong when the related experience is strong, but also there tends to be a trend, especially in the last few years, towards uh, consumer centrism, where uh, the consumer is straight in the, in the middle of the plate when it comes to the story being told. And the branding sometimes is there, sometimes is peripheral. And, and sometimes, like if we're talking about a TV ad, sometimes it only pops up in the last two seconds. Now, I'm curious with, with, your, with your experience, what your take is on that and, and talking about how central a, a consumer might be into this, um, as well as how you combine that great consumer story uh, with the household name. Yeah, so we're sort of getting into the whole content realm and, <clears throat> and uh, how is the whole notion of advertising and marketing expanding to, to go well beyond the traditional 30-second um, spot. And, you know, it's reflective of, 
uh, you know, something that I've talked about for years, which is we have to stop thinking narrowly in terms of um, what we're competing with. And if you're a Hershey, you know, I would tell people we're not just competing with Snickers. We're competing with a Facebook post from your crazy cousin, Freddie. You're competing with the latest Kanye antics on Twitter and a cat YouTube video, right? Um, you're competing for engagement and eyeballs and, and attention. So every bit of marketing you do, whether it's a 15-second TV ad or an online video or a piece of content marketing of some sort, it's got to be every bit as engaging and rewarding and entertaining or inspiring or informative as any of the content that people would be consuming that has nothing to do with it, with a commercial transaction. So that, that creates sort of a mindset that, you know, I think even when you're doing a traditional piece of advertising, you have to have a content mindset. You have to say, what is, what is the reward for the viewer, for the reader um, in this? And what am I providing beyond simply the good old-fashioned product sell? And, you know, consumer centricity is certainly one way into that. Um, and it's a great way also of, of bringing your brand into it in an authentic and valuable way. But, you know, as you highlight your customers, as you showcase them either in their lives, demonstrating you get them and you're adding value in some way, or you're, you're showing them and their passion for your brand or creative ways that use it. Um, that's just, you know, yet another way of making sure you're rooted in the insights that drive your consumer and that therefore should drive your brand. But it's also, you know, making sure that you're giving them something that they will respond to and resonate with and creating that ongoing dialogue. So it's not just, you're not just in broadcast mode, but you're in, you're in dialogue mode. That, that is, uh, that's an excellent point. And that's something that I was actually going to, going to ask you as a follow-up because uh, of course, it it sounds like you know there are a number of of central elements towards making uh, advertising any marketing campaign consumable. Um, but when it comes to creating that dialogue, rather than you know mostly looking at it as a top down broadcast, uh, and talking about now having conversations between people, I want to know if you think the same logic applies, and I would think that it does to making content shareable just as much as it is consumable something where you are you know inspired by something where you think something is fun so you 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 spread it around and um and whether that be online or via word of mouth um you know I, I think is sort of beside the point but i'm curious as to your take on whether these same principles apply when it comes to making brand brand content shareable as opposed to just consumable yeah so i think you know shareability and and you know the the good old abused term you know virality um, that, that's where you can get so much leverage. Uh, so if you're creating something that consumers want to share, I mean, it, it, there's tremendous sort of uh, multiplicative value in that, right? You get the, the sheer media value of that, you know, being spread. Um, you get the endorsement value of one trusted friend sharing it with another. Um, so, you know, that's a massive um, objective. And, you know, sometimes I think actually... So much so that people start out with the wrong uh, mindset and the number of times someone say, oh, let's go do a viral video. It's like, well, yeah, right. I, and everyone wants to you know, win the lottery and have, have, you know, and I'd love to have Brad Pitt's abs, but that's not right. That's probably the right objective uh, to start with. But 
how are you going to develop something that is you know so intrinsically rewarding, valuable, entertaining, um, share worthy that then that's the outcome. Um, and you know I think that can come in a, in a bunch of different forms. And um, you know sometimes just a pure piece of of advertising is so darn entertaining and clever and fun and interesting that it becomes share worthy in itself. You know I think often. Uh, when you're thinking what's shareworthy, you go to this, well, there can't be any brand or product involved at all. Um, so that's terribly the case. It just raises the ante on just what's the um, intrinsic sort of quality of what you're doing. Um, but then you get into this interesting um, sort of question about what is the role of the brand or the product uh, in that piece of content that you hope to be shared. And you see examples that range from, you know, things that have absolutely nothing to do with the product or the category or anything at all. It's just sort of a fun little thing with a cat, you know, brought to you by, you know, tasty snacks. Um, and, you know, and you, you can debate whether that has, you know, some brand value. Um, I, I think the best examples are when there's a natural, authentic integration of the product into the story that doesn't feel forced, that doesn't feel contrived um, and doesn't sort of uh, act as a, um, a negative on, on someone's desire to share it. Um, uh, but that it's not so also on the other extreme so distant that you say, well, why do we even do this? Would it have been better just doing a straight old print ad that actually says what a delicious beer we are? Sure. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think that's the holy grail is that sort of that, that integration. Got it. Well, that, yeah, that's important. And, you know, what just came to mind was, I, I think, one of the most recent successful integrations I've seen, and obviously a, a, a very well-known marketing campaign in Share a Coke, but uh, the, the, the ability to, to personalize and create something that is so inherently shareable and, and position it, you know, directly within a brand, I think is, is so important. And if you can do those two things, you get that well, viral campaign that you talk about, right. which, which I think um, perhaps folks in the marketing in in the marketing biz might know, is that well, you can go out and just as you say, you can say, well, I'd love to film a viral video today. It's like, well, okay, but are you setting yourself up well for that? Um, and and right. that that is an especially important question. And I think um, I think I'd like to transition a little bit into what I was mentioning before as to what that great upside might have uh, people sort of blindly aiming for without considering uh, the other side of the coin. Because up to this point, we have we have covered that okay, uh, brand value is incredibly important. You can target it to enhance your book value to an incredible extent. It is, if you can get a combination of something personalized and shareable where the consumer's journey and that experience is tied to the brand in a way that, uh, you know, is not just peripheral, but in a way in which they complement each other, that's super important. But I look at some of the ways in which folks are attempting to do that today. And you think about, you know, anything from as, as open as a hashtag campaign to, you know, something that you might see in a branded filter where companies are taking this, uh, these very valuable assets and they're, and they're giving them to folks out in the market who may be super positive about uh, their brand, may not love their brand, and can get a, a varied menu of content, uh, which may or may not be viral on its own, in response. And 
Uh, I know that you have touched on this, uh, you know, a little bit in your book when it just comes overall to uh, these these PR nightmares and, and risks of of things that happen in businesses, how to stay prepared for that, how to respond when it does hit. But I, I'm curious to uh, sort of the flip side of the coin where we've talked a little bit about how content can transform a brand and a business for the better. I think we covered that well with Capital One. I'm curious as to how uh, what your take is on on how the opposite of that can also be true about how content could transform a brand or a business at least temporarily uh, for the worse. Well, yeah, you've touched on a, some you know really interesting and troubling points. <clears throat> um, we we do operate in um, what's sort of a perfect storm of trends right now, where you've got this cratering of trust in pretty much every public institution. People trust the government less, media less, business less than ever before. Um, you've got rising fear, just generalized fear about the system's broken. Where is it going? I'm worried about healthcare and money. Um, you've got tremendous polarization. Um, you've got uh, you know, people sort of retreating to the bosom of their tribes. Consumers more and more kind of activist on social media because it's gotten so easy. Right. You can delete an app. You can hashtag boycott a brand. You can, you know, one click join a, a petition. Um, so it's created this environment where, in addition to all that, people are expecting brands to step up and put their values on display. And this is kind of what I focused on in the book, uh, Marketing in the Fake News Era. Um, so you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you step up and say, hey, we believe in these values or we support this cause, there will be probably just as many people who uh, hate you for it as love you for it. Um, and if you say nothing, then people will call you out for being complicit and sitting on the sidelines. So uh, it, it's an arena that's fraught with risk, uh, both in terms of you know, a well-intended misstep, or um, a misinterpretation of something you, you know, uh, never intended to communicate, but people interpreted. Um, uh, so the, the, the choices that, that brands make in terms of, you know, how do I engage or not? What content do I develop or not? And how do I make sure that sort of lands in the way I want it to and builds my brand versus stirring up controversy and damaging my brand? Um, that's all gotten very, very tricky. So um, it's it's a whole new reality that brands have to operate in, and uh, and and I would guess, and I would assume this is true, but that you know this is definitely amplified at least the volatility of brand risk today compared to let's say maybe not um, since uh, maybe 2016, but perhaps uh, even in the past 10, 15 years with the with the rise of of social media. Uh, I'm I'm curious if you know, if any recent examples come to mind, perhaps you could talk to one or two examples, which you mentioned in your book, uh, which which are reflective of that, where, you know, where this growing, it seems, societal skepticism has has hurt has hurt a business or, or has potentially hurt a business. And then I do have a follow up on that. But but I'd like to hear your take there and perhaps get a tidbit from from what you've put together in your vast research and writings. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, uh, one of the early examples that, that caught my attention and led to my writing the book was. Uh, Budweiser, um, uh, 2017 Super Bowl ad. Uh, there they are, you know, competing with all these craft brands with their interesting sort of, you know, uh, niche appeal and founder stories and 
um, uh, anti-corporate vibe. So they say, hey, we'll, we'll tell the story of our founder. Uh, Dolphus Bush comes to America with a gleam in his eye. And you know, as you know, Super Bowl ads take months and months and months to conceive and develop and produce and edit. Um, so that thing was in the works before there was even a presidential election. And yet when it landed, that was right in the middle of the um, immigration policy controversy and was broadly viewed as an anti-Trump anthem uh, as opposed to a Budweiser founder story. And suddenly you had, you know, boycott um, Budweiser and, and, you know, people up in arms in social media. And, you know, there was no intention to make a political statement there, but because of the context in which it came out, it was viewed that way. And you've seen that any number of times. I mean, Keurig Coffee, right, after Sean Hannity made comments about some of the Parkland shooting survivors that a lot of people found offensive, there was a call to Keurig and others to pull their advertising off Hannity. So they do that. Then you have the Hannity fans who start doing a hashtag boycott Keurig and smashing their machines and setting them on fire in their backyards because, hey, you pulled your advertising off my guy Hannity's show. So, you know, it's a buzzsaw that cuts both ways. And it, it comes back to being very intentional and short-footed about what are my values? What am I prepared to stand up for or not stand up for? But, you know, you need to be wide-eyed, open uh, ready to accept the consequences of whatever decision you make, um, because there are these just strong uh, feelings and all these digital tools out there to help people, you know, use your brand as a lever in whatever their agenda is. So it's just uh, now part of the fabric. Yeah, and and I I definitely have seen some some backlash on both sides when any of these things come up, and um, and they very quickly become issues for brands and it i think i agree with your assessment as well is that it, it happens on both sides where maybe a company takes a step in the right direction with with some content or with a with a pr message and then oh well now there's this whole other group of people who well they didn't like that and and at the end of the day you're right is you know people can use those brands as levers to to create um well just damaging content and or, or at least damaging buzz do you think that has uh, you know hurt companies and brands ability to be to be genuine in their messaging i mean do you think that it it becomes more and more difficult for a brand to try to appeal to everybody in a genuine way when there is a i guess increased sense of maybe just being offended but but being offended to the point of actually acting and doing something about it because that budweiser story seems to be highly illustrative of that fact here they are going for a very genuine message top down in a broadcast format where uh talking about their founder story all of a sudden, the context completely outside of their intentions change, and the messaging changes. And I'm curious with those, especially traditional media that gets planned so far in advance, if if the assessment is that well, it's becoming a lot harder to to land on a very genuine message that 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 doesn't that doesn't upset people. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things in play here. One is that I don't know that it's become harder to be authentic. I think it's become more important to be authentic, and uh, because people have become, in addition to becoming mistrustful and fearful, uh, also very cynical because they have seen an awful lot of uh, brands jumping on purpose bandwagons and greenwashing and, you know, look at how great we are, corporate citizens. And it's not always, you know, really authentic. And there's more talking the talk than walking the walk. 
And consumers now will sniff that out, especially with all the information and, and transparency, you know, through, through digital means. Um, so there has been a rising cynicism around companies that will, you know, wave some sort of purpose flag. So it's become really, really critical that if you're going to do that in whatever way uh, you choose, um, it's got to be authentic. And it's got to be really, you know, genuinely connected to something about your people, your business, your brand product. Um, and it has to be in the context of a sustained commitment of actions that show you mean what you say, right? And this isn't just a pretty ad, um, you know, example uh, that, that generated some backlash was uh, another Super Bowl ad by Audi talking about, you know, equal opportunity for women and, and why should my young daughter grow up to earn less than a man doing the same job? Well, guess what? Audi didn't have, you know, a whole lot of women in the boardroom or the executive suite. So that was a little bit of a glass house message. And they were talking the talk more than walking the walk. So I think it, it puts a premium on, on authenticity. Um, but you also need to, I think, let go of the idea that you're going to make everybody happy. Um, now, engaging in the broader social political arena doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to take a polar position and say I love Trump or I hate Trump or I'm for the wall or against the wall. But it does mean that um, it's harder and harder and less and less practical to say I want to be beloved passionately by everybody. And it places a premium on that really critical you know, marketing notion of who's your target. Right. You can't say my target is everybody. Um, and I think an example of a company that really stepped up to that notion is Nike when they, they you know, made the Colin Kaepernick ad. And clearly, clearly there's going to be a whole lot of people who are unhappy with it. Um, but it aligned with their business strategy of saying we're going to focus on the big mega cities um, is where our growth will be coming from in the future. I think they also said, you know, what is the future of our brand and the future of you know, popular culture? Well, it's probably not the 50-year-old white guys playing golf uh, who are now unhappily, you know, burning their, their golf socks. Uh, but it's going to be more the urban, diverse youth. And um, so they said, all right, we are going to, you know, take a step that will make us very talked about, very much relevant in the news pretty controversial, but we're doubling down on the people who we believe will be the future of our business. And we're willing to take the heat from the people who, yeah, I'd love to sell them some more golf socks. But if, you know, a few burned golf shoes is the price of, you know, uh, vastly improved relevance and resonance with my core target, then I'll, I'll pay that price. And that was certainly a, a, a prominent campaign of late and I think turned a lot of heads one way or the other. But yeah, definitely a, a great example of, uh, of all of this. And, you know, I, I remember uh, I, I had to ask this next question because the one thing that I do remember after that commercial, that whole campaign came out, which I'm aware they, they sat on Kaepernick for a while and they had him on their payroll for, for, for a long, long time before releasing that spot. They found the right time to do it. They did it. And I saw plenty of, of, of positive comments on the internet, but as you know, the internet can sometimes be a bit of a crude public, and I found myself much more 
running into, you know, uh, what videos, I believe there was a viral video afterwards to taken of people, you know, burning their Nike shoes and, and things like right. that. And, right. you know, while that's no attempt by the brand to include their branding in content, it, it nonetheless, it nonetheless happened. And it, it leads me to, to ask with a, with a programmatic, like bringing in, you know, a, a mega influencer like Colin Kaepernick, it's, it's rather easy to control the narrative um, as Nike wants it to be seen. And of course there will be backlash, um, you know, in, in the market as you can never satisfy everyone, as you said yourself, when it comes to some of what we see in this, in this new wave of marketing, where, uh, folks are trying to get even more directly one-to-one with the consumer and reflecting consumer stories. Again, I keep thinking about what folks are doing with, with hashtags and even with your, like your typical branded filter campaign. I'm wondering if, if, a- as you see it, there is a way for a balance between that incredible reward that you can get from that virality, but the risk of a cynical, uh, a cynical consumer base, not even if it's a consumer of your brand, but just any person out there with a phone, because it seems to me that we have covered, at least in this conversation, that uh, a, a brand's IP and the brand value is super central to a business's value. And in some of those more user-generated campaigns that aren't necessarily programmatic, these are brands who are putting some of their most precious assets into the hands of the very folks who are uh, the most averse to anything resembling advertising, at least somebody who is skeptical or distrustful, I think as we're seeing on average, or that's where the trend is going. And, you know, if you combine that with, you know, admittedly like relatively unregulated spaces like a Twitter or a Facebook it seems that you know there might be risk that is outweighing the reward just a little bit, and I'm curious as to what what your thoughts might be there because I know that part of your book talks about how companies can find the balance between taking advantage of of, of great messages while uh, sort of protecting from the downside of PR risk, and and so I'm curious as to your perspective from from a programmatic, which is, it, it sounds like we've covered a little bit. I'm also interested in what your take might be on something which is a little more grassroots. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's one of those where it's, it's such an important field to play in that you have to find your way. Um, but you also have to, you know, be very thoughtful and prudent because you are dealing with, as you say, you know, this precious asset. So I think in one way it starts with make sure you, you have a realistic view of, your brand reality and your relationship with your customers. And I think some of the examples that we've seen that kind of went south reflect probably some naivete about uh, not anticipating how folks would react. I mean, if you're the Fleabag Hotel and you say, hey, let's do a hashtag campaign of happy times at the Fleabag Hotel, you're going to get an awful lot of bed bug stories and, you know, dirty sheets. And that's just an invitation and reflects, you know, a certain lack of self-awareness. Um, so there's one which is just, you know, be, be be smart about how you step into that sort of space uh, and make sure you're ready for it and, and you're, you're not just sort of inviting all the wrong stuff. But I think there's also just a way in which you need to be um, – there's one realm which is you hope people talk and – talk positively about your brand, and that can be fodder that you amplify and play off of and turn into campaigns. But then when you're taking a little bit more of a, you know, intentional approach and, and actually 
you know, launching a program where you're inviting that kind of participation. Then there's a way in which you, you need to have some, or it can be very valuable to have some form of curation capability so that you're not just sort of, you know, uh, you know, opening up your storefront for everybody to come and graffiti whatever they want on it. Um, but that you're, you know, finding that balance between inviting participation and, and um, generating the engagement and the dialogue and the input and the inspiration that comes from actual user stories. Uh, but you have a way in which um, you're able to control and manage and curate what actually becomes your marketing um, as opposed to just noise in the Twitter sphere. So, you know, that, that, that I think is, is a big part of that balance. You, know, you start with being smart about what you're getting into and what the, you know, wargaming with the possible downsides or vulnerabilities or risks. But then you're also creating some way in which you are still in control of how your brand is um, deliberately presented to the world, uh, even as it's leveraging the user input. It's mm. a good point. It, it has me wondering because I, um, you know, as we think about the current methods that folks use to do that, to generate any of that stuff, which, which where a user might be even more the center of the message. And as you say, uh, are able to graffiti, whatever they want, you know, good or bad. I mean, in your estimation, we, we have things like that, like Snapchats and, 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 and hashtags and those things today. Um, you talk about getting smarter in a way to benefit from those sorts of things. I mean, do you think that there, do you think that that's all there is there? I mean, is there, is there a potential way to, it to improve upon that or do you think that that brands are taking maybe too much risk by putting like you know a sticker up anywhere and saying hey put your story next to this yeah um gosh uh i think there is a certain amount of risk you just need to live with um once you start you know inviting the public in but um but but yeah i think you, you need to be you know very thoughtful about how much risk and how exposed you want to be and how much permission do you grant for for people to just make whatever use they want of your uh, of your brand and i think that's where you know people like uh like Vivoom come in where you can you know create uh frameworks whereby you, you can sort of stay on brand and stay within sort of a, a brand safe context um but do it in a way that makes it really easy for consumers to engage and and share their stories um, so I think it's, you know, it would be a continual deft balancing act um, as you, you know, leverage the power that is engaging with the public when it comes to your marketing, but at the same time managing, you know, that that, uh, that vastly critical corporate asset. Okay. So I, I want to then then have us come to a, to, a, to a summary here because, you know, w regardless of the medium, regardless of the vehicle, um, we've talked about it a little bit, but I, I think going forward, it would be great to have to have your insight as a business leader and a thought leader here as to going forward, what what brands will need to focus on in, in this world of increasing skepticism. I think we've we've covered it a little bit with just, you know, at a certain point, knowing that there is always going to be two sides to the coin that you are going to get in response. Um, but, you know, and, and maybe we can talk now in terms of of some of the things that you are doing on a day to day basis. And I, and I and I'd love for us to to sort of dive into a little bit of what you're doing with CMO and how you are helping folks today navigate this thing. And, and, and whether that's through your thought leadership and marketing in the fake news era, or whether it's, it's what you're doing on a day-to-day -day now. I mean, how are, how are, you know, how are you now, you know, personally con contributing to this and helping folks make these sorts of decisions? 
Sure. Well, in a couple of different ways, you know, I, I do a fair bit of speaking, um, trying to uh, make people aware of the book, which I think offers sort of a useful kind of handbook for how to navigate a lot of this stuff. Uh, I've got a column in Forbes that, that I uh, write, not just about this topic, but, you know, marketing leadership issues generally. Um, but I also, you know, through CMO Inc., um, uh, you know, do consulting with organizations um, on a you know range of topics related to brand and marketing strategy, but you know also uh, related to this topic, which really so to your sort of earlier question, so require that brands remain authentic in a in a cynical and untrustful world. You've got to just be real, and you've got to make sure that the 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 brand that you are putting forth into the world matches brand reality, stems from your brand DNA. Um, and is expressed in a way that um, communicates that effectively, but also does that in a way that will land uh, well in an arena of so much sensitivity and so many nuances to how people will hear what you're trying to say. So um, that's all easier said than done. So that's something that I spend time helping companies with too, is just how do you really distill down um, what is at the core of your brand and how does that translate into a sense of beliefs and, and purpose and therefore marketing strategies? Um, so if you can find me on CMO Inc., uh, check me out on Twitter at Peter Horst. And I uh, would love to hear from anyone who hears this. And I hope they do. I hope they reach out because, you know, everybody wants to to get to the to, to the level of these companies that, that you've that you've come to the helm of. And I know we've talked about some great examples as to folks who are who are navigating this balance. Well, I, I, I'm curious as to uh, sort of your experience with, within CMO, if there, there are uh, there are a few examples of folks who you've really enjoyed working with there and who you think are are on the right path. Maybe beacons that we can look to, even if we're not tweeting you at Peter Horace, but we can go and see the sort of things that they're doing to just lead by example. Huh. Well, I'll give you, um, uh, I'll probably stay away from companies that I work with, to be honest. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of examples that I think are, are doing the sort of thing we talked about well. Um, the, uh, the, the clothing company, Aerie, um, has done, uh, you know, I think a nice job of what we just described, leveraging user content, connecting it to a brand, connecting it to a higher purpose, where they invited people to share um, unretouched photos of themselves in an airy bathing suit that they would then, you know, uh, for their campaign and do so in a way that reinforced their commitments to not retouch and Photoshop and airbrush uh, models, pictures and their advertising. And for every photo that was um, shared, they would then donate a dollar to, um, uh, you know, an eating disorder uh, support organization. So it was a nice integration of user and brand and purpose and and product, frankly, because their people are in their, you know, great looking bathing suits. Um, you know, I continue to be fascinated by Airbnb, which is just a great beacon on so many levels. I think just the... Uh, their brand of, you know, belong anywhere is just so much powerful messaging packed into those two words. Um, but uh, from a marketing and user-generated content perspective, that's really become the bulk of their marketing campaign, right? It's now thousands and thousands of pieces of content created by 
you know, uh, the uh, renters and property owners that they then curate and assemble into their marketing. But it's not, you know, a big fat agency churning out beautiful million dollar films. Um, so those are a couple examples um, uh, of companies that I think are really playing in an interesting way in this how to be authentic and purpose driven in a customer centric way, leveraging user generated content. And it'll be interesting to see where they go and, and how others might possibly follow the lead. For now, uh, it's been excellent to hear to hear your experience and, and your stories and your takes here. I, th- I think it's really important to hear from from a from a leader of 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 the marketing world such as yourself, and especially as you focus um, so specifically on some of these things, especially regarding uh, regarding brand risk. But um, Peter Horst, thanks th- thanks very much for joining us again. Marketing in the fake news era. You can uh, find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And uh, we just covered how we can uh, connect with you. But I'll say that again here towards the end of the episode. Peter, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again to Peter Horst for joining the show today. You can find him on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Peter Horst. You can also find him on Twitter at Peter Horst. That's H-O-R-S-T. And finally, you can get his book, Marketing in the Fake News Era, New Rules for a New Reality of Tribalism, Activism, and Loss of Trust on Amazon. Links to all of those will be in the description of today's podcast. Also, if you're interested in the general topic of marketing in an increasingly skeptical world and finding a more authentic message, I encourage you to subscribe and stay tuned to this podcast. You can also, if you like what you hear, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that and would love to hear your feedback. Finally, if you're interested in learning more in depth about how businesses are leveraging best-in-class UGC standards into their content strategies today and turning their audiences into networks of authentic influencers, consider checking out Vavoom, LinkedIn, Twitter, at Vavoom, and also at Vavoom.co. That's Vavoom, V-I-V-O-O-M. Thanks once again for tuning in to today's podcast. I'm really glad you listened in, and I can't wait for you to hear the next episode of Authentic Influence. Until then, I've been your host, Adam Connor, and you'll hear from me again next time.